When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and my name is Cindy Burnett. Each episode, I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. I am really excited to be launching a new series for my podcast entitled Behind the Scenes. The first Thursday of every month, I'm going to interview someone from the publishing industry about his or her role in the book world, including agents, bookstore reps, those in marketing, editors, and more. For this inaugural episode, I am chatting with the literary agent, Kristen Van Ogtrop of Inkwell Management. In her previous life, she wrote a column called Amateur for Time, was the editor-in-chief of Real Simple, and was named by Fortune as one of the 55 most influential women on Twitter, a designation she now finds absurd. She was a contributor to the New York Times bestseller, The Bitch in the House, and the author of Just Let Me Lie Down, Necessary Terms for the Half-Insane Working Mom. She lives in Westchester County, New York, with her husband, two dogs, and any number of children, depending on the day. I learned so much from our conversation, and I hope you do, too. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Kristen. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so excited to speak with you because I'm launching this new series called Behind the Scenes. And I get asked all the time questions about agents, of which I know absolutely nothing about. So I'm so excited to at least kind of skim the surface, learn a little bit more about what it's like being an agent and what you do day to day. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here and doubly happy to be your launch agent guinea pig person. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to Katie Russell Newland, who connected us. Yeah, the best. She's the best. She is the best. So let's start out with what a literary agent does. Like, what exactly would you consider your job to be? So I am the person who connects a writer who has a book to a publisher who wants to publish that book. I'm the person who helps the writer find the right publisher and helps publishers find great writers and great books. So how do authors find you and how do you accept authors? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, there are a bunch of different ways to find an agent. And I guess I'll I'll just speak 
to you from my own personal experience. I mean, there, there are databases that have lists of agents. You know, you can go to the websites of some of the bigger agencies. The agency that I work for is called Inkwell Management. We are a mid-sized literary agency headquartered in New York. And on the websites, they have, most agencies have the list of agents who work there and what those agents specialize in. And so it really, I mean, as with just about anything in life, it really pays to do your homework and make sure that, you know, you're targeting agents who are right for your kind of book. For instance, I don't do fantasy or science fiction. And so, but I, but I certainly get queries, unsolicited queries from writers who have written science fiction novels. And I think, well, you know, if you looked at the Inkwell website, you'll see that I don't list science fiction among the things that I represent. So anyway, so so you find an agent, a writer finds an agent by researching different agencies, looking at who the agents are. And then usually on an agency's website, there will be a general email where you can send a query letter, a query email. And it's usually, you know, asks to include your bio as a writer a summary of your book and say the first, you know, 20 pages or so. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just sort of query agents cold in that way. But the other way, you know, that you find an agent is it's just by talking to people. So, you know, I had, for instance, I had a, a Zoom call with a prospective client this morning who has written this great young adult novel and she is the niece of one of my sister's friends. So I had no, and she met my sister at a funeral. And so that happens too. You know, you just start talking to people and, and it's amazing how many people will say to you, well, I know an agent. And I'm assuming authors also have that information. Like if I've written a book that was very similar to Katie's book, I might say to her, who is your agent? And there might be some conversation there regarding that. Right, exactly. And if you look on the back of authors' books, they will often thank their agent. And so that's another great, I mean, Cindy, you raise a really good, a good point. You know, if, if you are a, an aspiring writer who doesn't have an agent, go to your local independent bookstore and pull off the shelves, or if you can afford to, to help the book industry buy some books and um, look in the back and see who the writer uh, of writers that you admire or writers, writers whose work you think is like your work and see who they thank in the acknowledgments and who their agents are. And that's a great place to start. Exactly. You know, if I knew I had a book that was similar to something you were already representing, or I thought it was similar, that would be a great way to start. So another thing that you mentioned, and I've always wondered about this, if I have a novel and I'm getting ready to query it, I don't send the whole novel. I usually just send a letter and the first 20 or 30 pages. Yes. I didn't and know that. And then the agent will read that. And then if they want the rest of the manuscript, they will, they'll ask for it. How long have you been an agent? I have not been an agent for that long. I've been an agent since the end of 2018. So a little over three years, which, which is a big career. I was a very, I was a long time magazine journalist and an author. And then when I left my magazine career, I started working, I took a couple of years off and then I started working as an agent. Did it take a little while to build up a clientele? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the interesting thing about being an agent is even agents who have been agents for 30 years, like the three partners at Inkwell Management, 
you're all, you're constantly taking on new clients. Right. So yes, I guess I guess it did, it's a gradual process building a list, but it's also a never-ending process. And I guess this may be a very basic question, but so I come along, I present my book to you, the first 20 pages, then you like it, you read the whole book, you're like, "Great, I'd love to, you know, to represent you." Then do we sign a contract for that particular book? Is it on a book by book basis, I'm assuming? Not at Inkwell. Okay. When you sign an agency agreement with Inkwell, you are signing on as a client for, you know, the book that you are working on now and future works. You know, we really like to, and I think most agencies would probably tell you this, you know, we really like to develop career-long relationships with our clients. So no, it's not book by book basis. It's really we stay together until one of us is unhappy with the relationship, which hopefully never happens, but Makes me think of until death do we part. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and even death doesn't end the relationship. Well, that's true, actually. If you have a if you have a, a an author who has a great backlist and their titles keep selling and selling and selling, um, the agent is still commissioning those books. It's just it's going to the author's estate or you know whatever. That's so funny. I hadn't even thought about it that way. <laughs> death can't even end it. <laughs> death will not end this relationship. So. I present my 20 pages to you and you think this probably could be a good book, but maybe it's not quite there yet. Do you give me feedback? Do you ask for the rest of the book? Do you give me some pointers and I go back and work on the rest of the book? And I'm sure that answer probably varies, but like, what is your standard process there? The answer does vary, but if I think that the first 20 pages are flawed, I will not ask for the rest of the manuscript. Right. Unless you're like a personal friend or something and and I'm reading the book as a favor kind of. But, you know, if you really, if you are a writer who is querying agents with a novel, for instance, you have to make sure that the beginning of that book is perfect. And so it's pretty, and, and by perfect, I mean, perfect is a funny word. It, it, I could read the first 20 pages of something and think this is fine, but it's not for me. And then I, I won't, you know, this isn't my, this isn't a, a, I'm not interested in the topic or I don't like the style of writing, which is not to say another agent wouldn't like it. It's just not, it's, it's an incredibly subjective personal thing. And selling a book as an agent is, there's so many obstacles to selling that you really have to believe in the book, even if even if you face a lot of rejection, which you probably will, because this, this, and it, it's a lot of rejection, right? It's a lot of rejection at the writer querying an agent stage. And it's a lot of rejection at the agent querying publishers stage. I don't know that I answered your question though. Did I, <laughs> did I answer your question? If I don't like the first 20 pages, I won't, then, then it stops there. Okay. So let's go to the flip side of that. You love the first 20 pages and you ask me for the rest of my book. What happens then? Obviously I give you the rest of my book. What do you do then? So then I read the whole thing and I, I, and a bunch of different things can happen. I say it's perfect and I would love to represent you. And we sign an agreement and I immediately send it out on submission. Okay. That like never happens, but it could <laughs> in, in an ideal world or, okay. So that's like, that's like fantasy. That's like the dream world. That's dream scenario. A level down from that is I love it. And well, actually, you know, an offshoot of that could be, I love it. I want to represent you. And the author says, 
well, I've queried four other agents too, and I'm going to go with this other person. Like that definitely happens. And that's true. I hadn't even thought of that. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, if you're an author who is submitting, when I read something that comes in sort of blind to me, I assume it's being submitted elsewhere too. And, you know, if you are a, if you're a considerate, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. If you are a considerate author, you will say in your query, you know, I have this out on multiple submissions or, or if, or maybe if the agent asks for, maybe don't say that at the beginning, but if the agent asks for more, you will say, you know, I, I have a couple of other people reading this. I think most smart agents will say how many other people are reading this. Like if they really like something anyway. So, so that happens too, where I say, I love this. I want to represent you. And a writer says, well, I'm going to go with this. Thank you very much. I'm going to go with this other person. Another thing that can happen is I can say, I really like this book. I would like to represent you. I think you're a wonderful writer. Would you be open to discussing some of the ways in which I think you can make your book better? And that's probably when an agent likes something and it it leads to a relationship where the agent is representing that writer. That's the thing that probably happens the most often where you will say to the writer, I really like this. I really see how wonderful this is. I just think it needs a little bit of, I think you need to do a little bit more work on it. Change some portion of it, do something different with the character, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that's prop. Those are actually probably the only scenarios that come about because if you think that the, if you don't like the author's writing, you're not going to want to represent that person. Or as you said, if it's a subject matter that doesn't interest you or a story that doesn't interest you, then there's mm-hmm. no point in going down that road. Right. So you tell me changes that you think I should make. I make them to my book and I hand it back to you. We get it to something that we both agree on as ready to go out for submission. I'm assuming that can take a lot of time or a little time, just depends on the book and the changes and all of that. Yeah. Then what's the next step? So then the agent submits it to, well, a couple of, like once again, a couple of different things could happen. The agent could say, I know the perfect editor for this book and I'm going to do an exclusive submission and I'm only going to send it to this person because I think the two of you would be a perfect fit and this publishing house is perfect for you. And I'm going to give this person two weeks to read it or, you know, some, some amount of time. And if they make you an offer, if they love it, as I think they will, and they make you an offer that you like, then we're done. So that can happen. That's not as common. What's more common is the agent will submit it widely to a bunch of editors at the same time at different publishing houses. Well, at different inputs. So right now there are only four big trade publishers and because they've all gobbled up all the little independents. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so you can, so Penguin Random House, for instance, is the biggest. They have a bunch of divisions. You So you can submit it to multiple editors within Penguin Random House, but you can only submit it to one editor per division. I was just going to ask you that. So if you're working with Ballantine or Doubleday or one of those, you could one editor at that particular imprint and then same thing down the road, but however many that may fall under Penguin Random House is fine, but only one per division. Right. Okay. And if say, if, if say you submitted somebody at Ballantine and they don't like it, you then can't go submit it to someone else at Ballantine. Like they answer for Ballantine. So that pretty much takes the, the no for that particular division or imprint. Okay. Exactly. 
I did not know that. That's interesting. It makes sense because especially some of these places with tons of editors, you would just be submitting, submitting, submitting. Well, and also they really, a lot of places sort of acquire collectively. Right. In my experience, you know, they, when an editor likes something, they they usually don't acquire in a vacuum. They talk to their colleagues about it. They see what else is on the Valentine, to use Valentine again as an example. They see what else is on the Valentine list. Is this going to cannibalize other authors that are already on our list? You know, it, it's, it's more, that, you know, they see what the sales and marketing department thinks. It's a group decision most of the time. So you've already gotten the answer effectively from the entire imprint versus just that editor. Right. Can we back up a tiny bit to the exclusive one? Now, is that also the same as preempting a sale? Because I hear that term a lot and I don't ever exactly understand what it means. Okay, so here's what a preempt means. And I will caveat this by saying I've only done one in my three years as an agent. I've only done one preempt deal. But so the scenario I was describing is an exclusive submission. A preempt is multiple editors are in, in again, my understanding, uh, another agent who's much more experienced than I am might listen to this and say, Christopher Van Ogtrap, you're totally wrong. But <laughs> this is, what, in my experience, in, for me and it, what I've seen with other agents at Inkwell, a preempt means you have sent it to multiple editors. Somebody is in love with it and calls you up and says, Will you take a preemptive offer on this and I'll and I will give you X amount of money for you to take it off the table? Then you go to the other editors who are reading it and you say, I'm accepting a preempt. Got it. So you've gone ahead and sent it out to multiple people, but somebody just fell in love with this story, knows it's the book they have to publish, and says, We're gonna preempt it. Okay. I wasn't sure what the difference in the exclusive and the preemptive was. So that helps me a lot. Thank you. They want to eliminate the competition. So they want to make you an, and, and if they make you a preemptive offer, you don't have to take, your client doesn't have to take it. Right. So you can say, I will, you're, you're welcome to make a preempt and I will, I will communicate it to my client, but the client might say, I don't think that preempt is good enough. Maybe I don't particularly want to go to that house. I'd rather go somewhere else or something. Right. That makes sense. So, okay. So then you wait to hear back from everybody. If we're not doing the exclusive, we're not doing the preemptive, then you just wait to hear from people. Potentially there's a bidding war if several people are wanting it, which I know is probably rare as well. But, you know, some of those stories you hear about, and then you just kind of get to the right fit or the the one offer or the six offers you Mm -hmm. negotiate, and then you sign the contract. And then what happens? So, well, so just backing up to one thing you just said, it's not, multiple offers is not rare. Okay. It's not probably the most common scenario, but it's not rare. Okay. I didn't know just because it seems like it's also difficult. So that's good to know. It is really difficult. <laughs> it is really difficult. But multiple offers is not, it's not like a, you know, super rare thing. Um, okay. So after, once your client has received one offer or multiple offers and has made a decision what publishing house she wants to go with, then your agent draws up the deal terms with the editor, the publisher starts putting together the contract. And again, I'm just speaking on behalf of Inkwell and my own experience. The publisher sends the publishing contract to Inkwell. Our contacts department goes through it, makes, you know, changes, pushes back on certain things, um, all sort of, you know, in in the effort to make things more favorable to the client. And, you know, depending on how often your agent has worked with that particular publisher and depending on who the publisher is, that process can take a long time. 
The contract process can take literally months. Okay. I didn't realize that. Only from the standpoint that it seems like it's something that's done so regularly that it's interesting that it can still take months. It can. Well, there's so publishing contracts are so long and detailed, and there's so many things to be negotiated sometimes. But sometimes sometimes the publishing contract takes weeks. And and this is also, I should hasten to add, if you if this is like a first time deal for your client with this publisher. If you have a client and it's their option publisher, meaning they've been published by this publisher before, they're going to be published by them again. The contract process is much faster and smoother because you've all done it before. Right. Anyway, once the contract process is finished, my role as an agent becomes diminished. So I step back and my client, the primary relationship my client has is with her editor. And I'm there. Somebody used this analogy to describe the role of an agent, which I think is really pretty great where the agent is the the author and the book editor are in a swimming pool and the agent is the lifeguard. Oh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and so I'm watching kind of what's happening, but I'm not in the water, but I jump in if anybody starts to like go under, you know, or somebody gets really tired. I, I only get involved for the most part if there's a problem. But once it gets to the phase, though, where we start talking about marketing publicity, when we get closer to the book publication, then my role becomes more active again. You know, that really depends. I'm sorry, I'm giving you a longer answer maybe than you wanted, but that that really depends on the kind of agent you have. It depends on the cli- kind of client and depends on the editor. Sometimes, like Katie Russell Newland, whose book was published by... Harper Horizon, who connected the two of us, you and I, one of my clients, Katie is incredibly self-sufficient and just kind of went off and wrote her book. And I had no idea what she was doing. <laughs> you know? And then, and then we got close and she didn't need me. Katie didn't need me. The editor didn't need me. And I trusted that Katie was, everything was fine. And that Katie would let me know if she had any problems. Some writers will send me their chapters as they're writing their books and say, will you please read this? Okay, got it. So it really can depend. It's case by case basis. Case by case. And in my experience, or in the way I like to work, really driven by my client and the needs of my client. Right. That makes sense. So what do you do when it gets to the marketing and publicity stage? So when that happens, generally, there is a meeting. These days, it all you know is happening virtually with me, my client, and then the team at the publisher, the editor of the book, and then the team at the publishing house who's going to work on marketing publicity for the book. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm there mostly as support, but I will sometimes ask questions. If I have a thought about, did you try this? Are you trying this kind of thing? What sort of events are you planning? If any, you know, that I'm there to sort of like, particularly if some, you know, sometimes I have clients who are very good, who have really developed what I think of as hustle muscles and they're very good at their own kind of PR and marketing. But then I have other clients who are not comfortable in that space or who are really new to this and don't know the right questions to ask. And so my job is to kind of fill in the blanks when my author is, needs a little help, I guess. Suggest some things you've seen other authors do or publicists do to kind of make sure everything's going well for that author. Right. 
Well, backing up, because that's interesting to me to know. So that kind of gets you to the to the end then. I mean, the book goes out in the world and anytime they still need you, obviously they reach out to you. But I would assume you're probably decently done with that book unless something exciting happens like hitting the New York Times or getting picked for Reese's Book Club or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, wait, sorry, there's one other piece. So if you have a book that would make make a good sort of film or TV property. Oh, that's right. Then I'm involved in that too, working with a co-agent, a film and TV co-agent. And that can happen almost at any stage. And do you pitch that? I mean, is that something you're thinking, I could totally see this on the screen like Katie's book? And then you, you go and pitch it to film agents that you know? Yes. So I know Katie's didn't come about that way. Katie's did not come about right. that way. See, more, just more proof that Katie Russell Newland is completely self-sufficient. <laughs> I just love that story of getting the DM because she's the one that got the DM on Instagram, right? Yeah. I just think that is so great. Like Kaylee Cuoco, she's like, am I being punked? (laughs) I know. Well, they did have a connection. Yes, that's right. She has a connection to Kaylee Cuoco. But even so, like that was like, that was great. And Katie did all the work and I just needed to bring a film and TV agent on board. But that's an unusual way to go about it. Normally, it's me sending a manuscript to a film and TV agent who I think would like this. And, you know, hoping that they'll say, yes, let's work on this together. I love this. And I really can see this as a limited series or whatever. And that just seems to be happening more and more. Yeah. Well, since the pandemic, since all we do is watch TV now. (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't even thought about that way. Also, I think it just gives the TV industry, because there are so many channels, so many things coming out, place to start. You know, you're not having to create a completely new story. You've got one to go with. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So backing up to the beginning, when you were getting submissions, I'm assuming you get way more than you can deal with. What are you looking for? Like what stands out to you? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. And it's, it's really hard to answer. And well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you sort of a two-part answer because there's one, there's one element of being an agent that we haven't talked about at all, which is like some of my job is being reactive and getting you know, getting emails from people either unsolicited or people who were sent to me by friends or whatever. But then the other is me being proactive and going after people who I think should write a book. So that's a whole other part of my job. And I would say my job is probably, it's probably 50, 50 of those two sides of my brain. Yeah. And that's, and that's true. I think for most agents, so it's not just like waiting for stuff to come to you. It's looking at, at, people in the world and saying that person should do a book. Anyway, what am I looking for? When, when things are coming to me unsolicited, they are usually, well, no, not always, but, but they're, you know, usually memoir or fiction. And so for me, the number one thing is voice. Do you have a great story told in a really compelling voice? And that's a very, very, very personal thing. I mean, that's, that's where no two agents are going to react to the same thing the same way. But I think that's probably the way it has to be because you only want to take on those stories that you feel like you can maybe not necessarily relate to, but you can work with that you enjoy and continue to make it better because if you're not going to enjoy it, you're probably not the right fit. Right. And you won't, you're right, because you're not going to have the sort of energy and passion you will need to really advocate for this particular work if you don't love it. I'm so fascinated by this going after side of it. And I guess I have heard of several authors that I've interviewed say that is how their book came about, but I just hadn't thought through 
how that happened. So you see somebody and you think they really have a great story. They've done a TED talk or they've written a magazine article or I don't know what else. Or they have an amazing Instagram. They have an amazing Instagram. Oh, yes, of course, or TikTok. And so you send them a note or make some kind of connection and say, I think you should write a book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. And is that usually successful? Um, no. <laughs> I would say that that's, I think that that's probably 20% successful. Okay. Well, that's not too bad, I guess. Because here's, you either get, I am writing a book and I already have an agent. Okay. You get that response. Yeah. You get, oh my gosh, I would love to write a book but then they actually don't really want to write a book. And sort of the further you get down the road with them, the, and the more they realize what's involved in say writing a book proposal, they back away, change their minds. Mm-hmm. Or they don't respond to you. Right. If you like send them a DM or an email or whatever. Or they say I have no interest in writing a book. Right. Or they say, "Oh my gosh, so glad you reached out. I've always wanted to write a book. Sometimes they say that, but I would say that's only 20% of the time. Yes, because it seems like most of the people that want to write a book get started trying to write the book. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I have just always found that. I mean, people are always asking me, do you want to write a book? I'm like, nope, not one little bit. But I think it does seem like lots of people do and are working on it. Yes. My last question for you before we talk about just what books you've read and loved is how you keep up with the trends in the publishing industry. Like, how do you best feel like you keep up with what's going on and what's changing, what's new, what's on its way out? Well, a couple of different ways. One is just talking to my colleagues. One of the nice things about Inkwell is it's a very collaborative agency and with a very kind of family spirit. And so so that's number one. And then there, there are a number of, you know, poets and writers or Publishers Weekly rather has a daily email. They probably have like four different email newsletters that I get that have, you know, that talk about new book deals and different things that are happening at different companies. There is a database called Publishers Marketplace and they send out a couple of daily emails that, you know, highlight recent deals and which editor is leaving which house to go to another house or retiring or, you know, whatever. So you just get, you know, it's easy to get industry news if you read the right sorts of email newsletters and talk to people. It's not hard. I guess that's very similar to what I do. I mean, I just get tons upon tons of newsletters, several of the ones you just described, but also just a bunch of other things about what's coming soon, most anticipated, you know, just so I can stay on top of what books are coming out. So it's the same idea. It's just backed up a little bit. Right. And then you just have to make inferences, you know, so it's not like, Publishers Weekly is going to spell it out for you necessarily, <laughs> but but you just start to, if you are a dedicated reader, you begin to see changes and trends and, you know, you figure it out for yourself. Exactly. And like you said, you see what's coming or you think, oh my gosh, there's so much World War II right now. I'm not sure I'm ready to take on another book or there's a lot of domestic thrillers, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also editors will tell you, like, we, you know, you have regular lunches and meetings with editors. Sometimes uh, for, at, at Inkwell, for instance, we'll host a meeting where the whole editorial staff of a division will come and we'll have a big Zoom meeting and they will say, like, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're looking for. Like rom-coms, can't get enough rom-coms. You know, thr- everyone still wants thrillers. So, so the editors will also tell you what they're looking for. Oh, I love that. I hadn't even thought about doing it that way. And that's probably just truly, you know, kind of boots on the ground. Yeah. 
So do you find time to read outside of your work? I do. I read, um, I read mostly fiction outside of my work. And I mostly read lying in bed at night. So, you know, I, I read, I'm, it's, it's sad, but I tend to read in kind of short increments. But, but yeah, I do still read. What have you read recently that you really liked? So I just had COVID. And so I oh, read no. a lot when I was having COVID, when I was in isolation in COVID. So I read Elizabeth Strout's new book, Oh, William, which, you know, she, to me, is just like the queen. I love everything Elizabeth Strout writes. And so I liked Oh, William. I read Gary Steingart's new novel, My Country Friends, which was just astonishing to me because, it, you know, it's about the pandemic. Right. And the fact that he wrote this long, detailed, hilarious, wonderful novel in the pandemic and it's out already is just a sad about how long the pandemic is and be a testament to just what a, a really fine, hilarious, obviously really fast writer he is. I just, right before Christmas, I read The Sweetness of Water by Nathaniel Harris which I really liked. I've heard such good things about that one. Oh my gosh. It's very moving. It's pretty sad. Yeah. But it's really, he's a beautiful writer. He's a beautiful writer. Uh, and right now I'm reading The Lincoln Highway, which every other person in America is also reading. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and talk about a beautiful writer. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I think Nathaniel Harris is a more beautiful writer. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Can I say that on your podcast? You can say whatever you'd like. And Our Country Friends, Our Country Friends, that's the name of the other one, right? Oh, is it our or is it my? Is it my? Okay, My Country Friends. I couldn't remember. I bought it when I was in New York, but I have not read it yet. It's very fun. I mean, do you like his writing? Have you read other things? I have never read him before, but I was totally intrigued with a pandemic story that's supposed to be funny. Well, I read Little Failure, his memoir. I mean, years ago. Don't remember it very well at all, but remember liking his writing. I bet. So I don't know what your taste is. I mean, he's a very specific sort of taste. So the reviews I read made it sound good. And I usually can get a pretty good sense for whether I'm going to like something or not based on kind of reading a little bit about it and the words people are using to describe it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I think it should work for me, but we'll see. I'll get back with you. Well, can I just say one more thing about that book? Oh, of course. So it has this cast of characters. And most of them are pretty unlikable, and so I think. And so it, it's another testament to his strength as a writer that most of the characters in the book are unlikable, and yet you want to stick with them. I agree with that, because I do think unlikable characters sometimes can be problematic. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't like <laughs> Succession. Yes, me either. Because <laughs> I, I can't stand any of those people. I agree. Or Yellowstone. It's the same way. I'm like, these people are all crazy. Oh, see, I haven't tried that one. Oh, yeah, don't. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's kind of how I am. So oh, that's interesting. Well, this has been absolutely delightful. I feel like I have learned so much. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast and being my inaugural behind the scenes guest. Well, it's been fun talking to you. I hope most of what I told you was right, since I've only <laughs> been an agent for three years. But it's been really nice spending this time with you. And I, and I thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed this first behind the scenes episode and are looking forward to more. Next month, I will be speaking with an audiobook narrator. And if you have any questions you would like me to ask her, feel free to drop me a line through my contact form on my website. I hope you'll tune in next time. Mm -hmm.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.